from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. Tonight, a special report on the state's medical cannabis program and a bill this session to expand it to further accommodate patients. We'll also get an update on other major health care bills from House Health and Human Resources Committee members. That's later in the program. But first, a brief news update with reporter Emily Allen. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, the big foster care bill, 4092, was up for passage in the House today. Tell us about it. Yeah, I'll be really excited to hear what your interview has tonight because this is a huge bill that the committee has been championing. Um, House Bill 4092 would, I think most notably the point they've been um, beating is that it would establish a bill of rights for a foster care child, a child in the system. Um, things like, you know, their clothes have to fit them. If uh, they're entering the system with their siblings, you know, let's try to keep the siblings together as best we can. Um, just stuff like that. There's also a bill of rights for foster care parents. Um, there's more accountability for the guardians ad litem, the attorneys appointed to represent the children. I think the, the point that has, um, kind of held this bill down, you know, they was actually assigned to the Finance Committee and came out last week, is a fiscal notice that would kind of increase the, the pay that foster care parents and kinship caregivers um, would get while taking care of the children. Um, that is a point that was referenced today as it passed the House floor. Um, you know, it passed House Finance, the bill is going to provide for this raise, but um, some delegates were nervous that the raise would, um, the Senate would drop it when the Senate considers it next. So you're going to be hearing from Delegate Daryl Coles, a Republican, uh, Delegate Barrett, a Democrat, and then at the end, Delegate McBates on this issue, um, whether or not the, the money is important and how they feel about uh, the Senate taking over this right now. There is uh, a level of support that's needed for foster parents in West Virginia, and this goes a long way to covering some of those things. There's a level of support that's needed for foster children in this state, and this goes a long way to saying we, we, uh, we want to support those things, even without the money in it, Mr. Speaker. So I certainly support the bill. I appreciate the effort that's been put forth with it. Uh, the money's an important part of it, but it's not all of it. There are other critical parts of this. Great emphasis has been placed on the projected cost of this bill, but we must acknowledge that this is an investment an investment in West Virginia children. With these necessary increases, agencies will be able to recruit and retain more foster families, leading to less children placed out of state or in higher levels of care than necessary. These improvements over time will save hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. Um, this is the first big nut that we're going to send across to the Senate. Uh, and I very much appreciate the chairman looking at his budget and plan on working with him and everybody else in this body to make sure that this important program to us all is adequately funded uh, if the Senate intends to do something else with the money. So um, we've, we've done good work here, uh, but the job is not done. So uh, we need to defend our policy, but we also need to defend our decision to make sure that our funding 
for this problem and the money that goes to these children and families is taken care of in the context of our overall budget. So that bill almost passed unanimously today. There were three members uh, not there, and then the only one red vote was from Delegate Pat McGeehan, a Republican out of Hancock County. Otherwise, it goes to the Senate. Goes to the Senate. Okay, now over on the Senate side today, uh, Senator Eric Tarr of Putnam County made some remarks about the harm reduction program, uh, the needle exchange program in Cabell County. He had been invited down to take a tour by someone who was very upset at the discarded used needles. Um, and then uh, the, the senator quoted from a DHHR report in 2019 that stated 1.4 million needles in West Virginia had been dispensed through the, the program that they oversee, and around 460,000 of those were not returned. And so here are the comments by Senator Tarr this morning. Now there are good exchanges that operate, don't get me wrong. Because as you know, the bill that I initially put out said outlaw them effective upon passage. And if one of these children that came up here this morning, for all the good that a needle exchange may do in West Virginia, one of those children, your child, gets stuck by one of these needles that I just described, how much good has that needle exchange done you? Mr. President, I'm probably going to be talking about every day about this issue. And if DHHR doesn't do it, and I'll be running a bill every freaking session until, and talking about it, until this legislature takes responsibility for what we know by what DHHR reports. It can be done right. It's not happening. There's half a million needles out there just in this past year's evidence of it. So thank you for your time, Mr. President. Now, needle exchange programs, are, of course, are evidence-based programs. They are part of the state opioid response plan. And we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, we'll get more reaction to the harm reduction programs later in this program. Emily, what else in the House? Yeah, um, so during closing remarks, Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, stood up and he mentioned a meeting that uh, the Speaker of the House and the Senate President had last week with Virgin Hyperloop. Um, they're trying to find a site in West Virginia. Um, his remarks took an unexpected turn and it, he kind of made it into a reason to bring up non-discrimination acts. So obviously there were several bills in the House that are no longer active um, that would bar discrimination against people um, based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, so he said that, um, and this is a point that advocacy groups have brought up too, Fortune 500 companies, when they look at a place they wanna move to, um, you, you know, allegedly according to all these remarks, they look for states with NDA, these um, discrimination policies already in place. Um, so he took it as an opportunity to reintroduce a bill that would bar discrimination nation. Um, obviously that effort failed. Those five bills are still inactive and there's two bills, one, you know, with some kind of chance talking about that in the Senate now. All right. Emily Allen, thank you so much. Work from the legislature's health and human resource co committees has produced legislation this session that would impact not only the foster care system, but Medicaid, insulin costs, substance use disorder, and child welfare. Earlier today, I spoke with House Health Vice Chair, Delegate Jeffrey Pack, a Republican of Raleigh County, and Health Committee member, Delegate Cindy Lavender Bow, a Democrat from Greenbrier County. 
Thank you both for being here today. We appreciate it. Let's start with the news of the day, the, the announcement this morning that Fairmont Regional Hospital will be closing. Now we've heard from local lawmakers, uh, really a call to action for fellow uh, legislators, for the governor to address this in some way. So I'd like to hear from the two of you, Delegate Pack. Let's begin with you. What can the legislature do to help um, shore up our, our hospitals, especially our smaller hospitals that, that are closing. That's right. This could have happened not in Fairmont. It could have happened in any, any area in West Virginia, and that's something that we have to be cognizant of. I think that what we have to do is we have to find a way to make it um, uh, profitable for the hospitals to stay in business. Um, that's not something that a lot of people like to talk about. Oftentimes that seems like a dirty word, but um, these hospitals are in business. Um, they have to make a profit, otherwise they won't stay open, and, and that's something that we have to look at. And, and we know that, um, you know, the, the, the level of, of charity work that they have to do, there's more and more that they right. absorb, and that really impacts. It really does, and, and in West Virginia especially, we have so many of our, um, of our folks here in West Virginia that are either on Medicaid, Medicare, or PEIA, and all three of those programs pay at a reduced rate to what private insurance pays, and that makes it especially difficult on these hospitals. A any thoughts on what can be done? Well, I think we could, we could look at when was the last time that reimbursement rates were increased. I don't know the answer to that. Um, maybe there are um, outside-the-box uh, things that we could look at that could increase revenues for the hospital. There's probably a lot of things that we need to take it, uh, into consideration, and I think our interim period would be a good time to do that. Uh, Delegate Lavender Bow, the, the same question, and, and also uh, at the beginning of the session, the governor proposed that Medicaid Families First Fund, putting $150 million away. And I know members of your caucus have said, wouldn't that be better to use that money? $150 million could uh, match with our federal match could be 600 million. I mean, it, would uh, Medicaid reimbursements be the way to go right now? I think absolutely that's something that we need to look at. And just like Delegate Pack said, this could happen any county in the state, especially when you look at the rural, the rural counties. And we need to be looking at any and all solutions that, that we can inside and outside of the box to, to keep our hospitals open. And he's absolutely right in saying they need to be profitable. You know, the stuff that, that is not making money for them is generally the, the kind of care that we need our hospitals to provide. So, um, you know, we need, we need to make sure that we are coming together. Um, and I think we do that well in the um, health committee, bipartisan-wise. And we really, you know, really need the governor to step up and try to help us to find some solutions. Because this, if this could be in your town, you know, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Delegate Pack, um, a really big day, I think, for you probably yes. personally, what you've said about uh, the, the foster care bill, 4092. You've said that that is absolutely, absolutely your priority. It is. It's absolutely my priority. Uh, it passed out of the House today. It, it did. There, I think uh, almost unanimously there was one no vote on that bill. Um, you know, we're all elected to, to come down and represent our constituency, and one of the things that I heard most loudly from the folks I represent is that this is, in fact, a problem that needs to be addressed. And um, what passed today is a culmination of a lot of hard work from a lot of folks, uh, Delegate Lavender Bow, um, myself. Uh, folks on both sides of the aisle have, have worked hard on this bill, and, um, and I am, I'm honored that we were able to get it out and send it to the Senate. 
uh, Delegate Lavender Bow, did it uh, does it does it go far enough for you? Uh, does it address um, so many of the concerns that advocates have have expressed for more than a year now? Well, our foster care system um, is so vast and the crisis is so big and there's, I'm sure that there's going to be things that we're going to need to work on in the future, but I was really happy with this bill. I think, um, as um, my colleague said, it was almost unanimous. It made some, some great changes and I think uh, that we feel most strongly about the increase in the payments to the foster and kinship families because it, you know, it can be um, really a hardship, especially when you're taking on more than one child and what we've learned, um, especially over the interims, that many of these families are taking in two, three, four children. So that was really important and, and I think it's a great step forward. It's a big step forward. Um, Delegate Pack, just talk to us about your um, you know your involvement in this in in this issue. You've talked about it in in other venues. If you would just share what what you've been able to to learn. Okay. Well, um, I I began by having a series of town hall meetings in my district, and the thing that I I didn't expect to hear was foster care. So we we had a couple meetings about that specifically, and once I uh, discovered the the depth and the breadth of the problem we decided that we were gonna look into it. And then when I found myself on the health committee um, and we spent all interim session last year working on this. So um, I, it, it attempts to address all of the major problems that have been identified in the system to my knowledge. Let's talk about um, adverse childhood experiences and the legislation that has um, come from your committee as well. One of them was uh, was was voted on today, had an amendment put into it. That is the um, 4773 Delegate Lavender Bow. It creates a work group to investigate and recommend these screening tools for adverse childhood trauma. We know these are events that um, that impact the, the children so profoundly that um, they very often impact the, the trajectory of the, yeah. the rest of their lives. Um, and, and so what does this particular um, screening and investigating uh, kind of uh, bill uh, seek to do? And was the amendment by the majority leader, uh, does that weaken the bill in any way? Well, I think that um, the bill moving forward is really important. I think we, we had a few amendments today. We had um, Delegate um, Summers' amendment, but then we also had one that added the um, state school superintendent and the NAACP to this work group. The purpose is for to get as many of the stakeholders involved to sit down at the table and to, to study this because we know ACEs are there. We know they're very, very prevalent, not only in our children, but in our adults in this state. And we just wanted to bring awareness to that. And one of the folks who are seeing the, um, the outcomes of these adverse childhood experiences, be able to come to the table and come together with a way to help identify um, not only those children with, with um, higher scores, but also to start working out solutions, like how can we support them, not just in the school system um, and in the healthcare system, but you know, throughout the community. And I think that was a big part of um, why we tried to include so many different stakeholders in that work group. And that, uh, that bill is up for uh, passage in the House tomorrow. Um, a delegate Pack, uh, one of the things that we heard in the Senate this morning was um, Senator Eric Tarr made some remarks at the end of, of the floor session. You're, you're looking that you didn't hear, and I, I'll tell you about it. He was expressing his displeasure, really, with the current harm reduction program 
um, down in, uh, in, in Cabell County mm -hmm. is where he went to visit. And um, he, he supported harm reduction programs. He said that um, the well-run programs are effective and, and he sees the value in those. He was saying that our current DHHR-run um, uh, uh, harm reduction bills, the needle exchange programs, must be addressed. Is this something that you, um, you know, w would consider in your committee? Is this something that you too believe needs to be looked at? Well, I, I do think that, that these programs, you know, in theory, in theory they, they work better than sometimes that they do in practice. Um, you hear about places, you know, where where there are needles all over the place um, on the streets and the parks and playgrounds, and and that's not how any of us want to live. So, would we consider taking something up? We would absolutely consider taking something up. Um, it would have to. I would, I would rather do one thing right than try to do a lot of things and do them wrong. So, um, th this isn't something that you want to just haphazardly take a swing at. I think this is something that you have to really look at and you have to bring a lot of people in and see see where it does work and see where it doesn't work. We do that with a lot of other things. We find out um, what programs, what other states do things right um, and try to model those and we find um, states that maybe it didn't work out as well as we had hoped and we try to avoid those pitfalls. Delegate Lavender Bow, um, House Bill 4543 is up for passage tomorrow in the House. This would put caps on um, out-of-pocket insulin costs for uh, thousands of, of West Virginians. I know that uh, your caucus has been particularly focused and, and pushing this legislation. Uh, remarks on the bill before it comes up for a vote tomorrow. Well, I think this is absolutely something that's needed in our state. And again, it's a bill with bipartisan support. Um, folks on both sides of the aisle have had these same um, experiences in their family, in their community, and talking to folks who are, they, they have to make choices between uh, medication and food and utilities. And this is just a way to help those folks, um, you know, to be able to afford the medications that they need to live. And I, and I think this is a, a great bill. It's a great um, support to those folks suffering from diabetes. Uh, Delegate Pack, I, I, we just have a few moments left. What other major bills or bills of significant importance do you want to see um, come through your committee in time for crossover day? Well, you know, there. Um, to be honest, most of the bills that we um, had had placed as a priority for our committee have already passed out. Um, Currently, we're awaiting bills that come from the Senate. We're taking a look at those. We're going back and rechecking on, on some bills that um, have been introduced and maybe we didn't run initially. Well, then tell me what else that we haven't covered, just one, one issue or one piece of legislation that you're particularly happy that came uh, out of your committee. Well, I, I'm, I'm pleased that we took a look not only at insulin, but um, at, at um, legislation that dealt with uh, pharmacy benefit managers to lower prescription prices, not just for insulin, but, f but for many uh, medications for folks across the state. Okay, and Delegate uh, Lavender Bow, your last uh, word as well. What major piece of legislation you're really pleased got out? In, in addition to the things that we've um, mentioned, we also had um, a bill that came through health um, that's moved and that's House Bill 4198 that allows for 12 month prescription to be written for uh, contraception. And that, that you know cuts down on the number of visits that um, someone has to have to the doctor. And, and I think that's gonna be, again, um, savings in you know, our constituents' pockets.
That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Delegate Jeffrey Pack, Republican from Raleigh County, Vice Chair of the House Health and Human Resources Committee, and Delegate Cindy Lavender Bow, uh, also a member Democrat from Greenbrier County. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Next, an update on the state's medical cannabis program, passed in 2017, but not yet up and running. Dave Mistich reports on a rules bundle and another bill that could further define how the medical cannabis program would ultimately operate. Lawmakers took a major step in 2017 toward legalizing cannabis use in West Virginia when they passed a bill that created a medical program. But nearly three years later, the program still isn't operational and many say it's still more than a year away from launching. Delegate Mick Bates, a Democrat from Raleigh County, has been working to improve the state's medical cannabis program as it gets off the ground. He says the original legislation that created the program still needs many fixes. There were some flaws in the original bill that was passed. I mean, we forced that bill to the floor. Uh, the bill that came across from the Senate back in 2017 actually would have got the program up and running. But the negotiated uh, agreement with the House leadership, um, there were some regulatory issues that were inbuilt in this that we've had to work our way through. So it's, it's regulation heavy. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's complex. There was a banking issue. So um, there's been several roadblocks to get this thing. And so we're trying to work our way through that and, and try to get to a point where you know, this, this is actually going to be a viable program. This session, lawmakers are working their way through a Department of Health and Human Resources rules bundle, Senate Bill 339, that further defines how the medical cannabis program will operate. But there is one aspect of the bill that's been getting most of the attention. Currently, the medical program only allows patients to use the drug in the form of pills, oils, gels, creams, and other forms available for vaporization or nebulization. It excludes dry leaf or flour, the smokable or ingestible form of cannabis most people might be familiar with. That could change if Senate Bill 339 passes. Advocates like Bates say further expanding the medical cannabis program by adding flour would be a major improvement. You know, either to ingest it or to uh, inhale it are the most effective forms of, of actually using cannabis. And that's what patients want and that's what patients expect when they go in the door. Right now, uh, that's not what they would get with the existing, uh, with the existing uh, code and existing regulations. So uh, that rule goes part of the way but doesn't go the whole way uh, in terms of fixing those things. 33 states in the District of Columbia have made medical cannabis legal. But as Bates points out, West Virginia's program has been slow getting off the ground. The state had to find a way to circumvent federal banking laws because cannabis is listed as a Schedule One drug. And just last year, lawmakers passed a measure that allows cannabis businesses to be vertically integrated, allowing them to act at once as growers, processors, and dispensaries. Rusty Williams serves as a patient advocate for the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board, a panel tasked with making recommendations to lawmakers. He says progress is happening, albeit slowly. And I think we're about a year away from, from patients to be able to access medicine in the dispensary. So it's a good thing. I'm glad to see that it's finally getting up and running. But again, without, uh, without patients' ability to grow their own, we're, we're leaving a lot of people out. William says there's a need to include flour or cannabis in its plant form and what could be available to patients. But he says another key aspect is allowing people who may not have the means to pay for medical cannabis products or may not have geographic access the ability to grow their own at home. I'm very pleasantly surprised to see that the Senate is pushing a bill that will let patients and caregivers grow their own. I think as far as getting our medical bill fixed, getting it where it needs to be um, to promote better patient access, home grow is absolutely crucial. Another measure being debated in the legislature, Senate Bill 752, would change state code to allow the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board recommendations 
to determine what forms the product would be available to patients. The introduced version of the bill would also allow patients and caregivers the ability to grow their own cannabis. Senator Tom Tacubo is a Republican from Kanawha County. He's also a doctor who specializes in pulmonology. He says, given his experience with patients, he supports adding flour to the state's medical program. I'm a, a very um, strong opponent to smoking, whether that be cannabis or whether that be tobacco. Uh, but again, these conditions that are spelled out that uh, people can have medical cannabis are pretty dire situations. And so I've had patients with lung cancer uh, that have come that um, they're not asking for pain medicines anymore. They're not having nausea symptoms anymore. And when I ask them, you know, how's it going, what's going on, they're very apologetic for using cannabis. And uh, I tell them, don't, don't ever um, be apologetic for that if it's helping you. But not all lawmakers are supportive of adding new forms to the state's medical cannabis program. Republican Senator Eric Tarr of Putnam County is opposed to cannabis in all forms and in all ways. He disputes the idea that cannabis could be used for medical purposes. There are their anecdotal things, and so if that were to come down from federally and say, okay, that this is a drug that works with this condition, and if you prescribe it for this, this is what you can expect, whether it's pain relief, whether it's disease control, those things. If that research exists, and it goes to an FDA process like any other medicine that we would add, that we, you would have your children take because you trust that it's a tested drug, then I'm completely okay with that. But we're bypassing all that and calling it medical in order to get a step to recreational. Anything else is a ploy. Some lawmakers like Bates want to go even further. He would like to see cannabis legalized for adult recreational use. But he says a bill that would do that has been triple committee referenced, and it's likely too late in the game to happen this session. However, state officials do continue to ready the medical cannabis program for launch. And as session winds down, the legislature may very well expand on current law to allow the plant in its purest form to be used and open up access for patients to grow cannabis on their own. For the legislature today, I'm Dave Mistich at the Capitol. The DHHR Rules Bill, Senate Bill 339, will be on second reading in the House of Delegates tomorrow. Senate Bill 752, which would also allow cannabis flower to be used for medical purposes, was on the agenda today in the Senate Judiciary Committee. For the latest on both bills, visit us online at wvpublic.org. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Thank you.